ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Greetings, I'm Tom Gilson. Today's ID the Future completes a three-part series with author Neil Thomas, the self-described fully committed rationalist who looked at the evidence in nature and ended up changing his mind about evolution and intelligent design. He's written about it in his book, Taking Leave of Darwin, a longtime agnostic discovers the case for design. And here he talks about it with Hank Hanegraaff on the Hank Unplugged podcast. You'll hear Hanegraaff speaking first as we begin. You have some delicious monikers in your book, including materialistic magic. You use that word (laughs) magic several times in the book. Talk about the materialistic magic that's part and parcel of the Darwinian paradigm? Well, I think it really goes back to whether you think that things can emerge by some kind of occult automatism, as in magic shows for children and adults, even to the modern day, or if you feel obligated to be able to put your finger on exactly the process or the lever or the mechanism which causes these things in the first place. And one of my gripes is with the too glib assumption that you can elide, that is, leave out many parts of your chain of reasoning in order to simply postulate that such a progression must have occurred. Often the word must have, would have, probably would have. This is the kind of thing. As, well, as a self-styled rationalist, this does not sit well with me. I need to be able to have the proof of things. And the fact that that proof is not forthcoming, I find deeply suspicious. I mean, one of the things I've thought about, because for many large tranches of my life, I've counted myself as a rationalist, is why on earth, when the philosophical current which you associate most strongly with rationalism, that is logical positivism, the ideas of Sir Alfred Eyre and his language, truth and logic of 1936, and the Vienna Circle and all that sort of stuff in the early 20th century, why is it that when they were inclined to call all manifestations of religion nonsense, they'd spelt this as non stroke sense. And what they meant, they weren't being scholars. What they were saying was, this does not stand up to rational analysis. Okay, I can understand from their perspective where they were coming from. But why did they never attack Darwinism on the same grounds, which has even less empirical support, it seems to me, than many of the major world religions does. And it wasn't until I was reading a book Uh, rereading a book recently by a philosopher called Richard Spilsbury. It's a critique of Darwinism, which came out, I think it was OUP 1974, so some time ago now. He said that he had had the same wonder as to why the logical positivists had not attacked Darwinism since they attacked every other person in the universe for being subpar logically. And Spilsbury said that basically he felt this was because even though they might have felt that Darwinism 
was questionable. They did not wish to question it because it all contributed to the kind of materialist worldview that the logical positives held on other grounds themselves. And that seems to me all too plausible because it chimes very exactly with what happened with Darwin's famous bulldog, Thomas Huxley, who himself, right up until the end of his days, he believed in evolution in some way or other, but he did not believe in natural selection. But yet he was Darwin's greatest defender. Darwin felt that Huxley self-peddled natural selection in his talking about evolution. And Huxley tried to apologize into his beard about that sometimes. But he still, in his heart of heart, he did not believe in natural selection. So I think it's quite possible that the logical positivists would not have believed in natural selection, could have thought it was as much of a load of old nonsense as I think it. But they stayed silent because they had another agenda, and that was the materialist, non-theistic outlook on life. Yeah, that's right. I want you to talk a little bit more about your fellow Brit, Richard Dawkins. (laughs) (laughs) He says that the universe we observe has precisely the properties that we would expect if there is, at the bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Mm. You, by contrast, make a strong case for Earth being a privileged planet, that the Earth is fine-tuned for habitability, that the Earth is uniquely blessed. What are we to make of the squabble between the two Brits? <laughs> well, I, I'm not a, I repeat, I'm not a scientist like Dawkins is. I'm simply, I hope, an unbiased member, foreman of the jury who's making an independent audit of what the scientists have done. But anyway, yes, I think this is a strange one. Basically, Dawkins, in as much as he... Many people have said he's a stranger to philosophy. Well, he might be a stranger to philosophy in the technical sense, but I think that his philosophical mentor was one Bertrand Russell from the early 20th century. Russell was a strange man. He had begun his life in faith, but had lost his faith and had become rather embittered by it. And he'd become a kind of blank and blanket atheist. And he was predisposed to see the heavens and and earth through the filter of that atheism. And it is true that if you look outside this orb that we're privileged enough to inhabit. I mean, all you can see outside is a kind of gigantic and destructive pinball machine of planets and meteors and fire and destruction and and so on. And I think that, yes, it was really from the 1970s that people were minded to connect the dots and to see that there were these cosmological constants, the so-called Goldilocks zone, that cliche has been done to death, I know that, but the fact that the earth is not too hot, not too cold, it has plentiful provisions thus far, unless we use them all up, which I hope we don't. And so nobody seemed to have that perspective on things, or not enough people had that perspective until the 70s. And I think what Dawkins and his mentor Russell were going back to was a time before cosmologists had looked at this problem four square and were inclined to lump together the Earth 
with the exterior cosmos. And I think that the Earth and the exterior cosmos are incommensurable in that sense. I mean, the exterior cosmos is a form of hell, in my view, whereas what we've got here, even though we mess it up hugely, is a potentially extremely productive and maybe even blessed place. So I think what we've got here is a difference in guys. I think that Dawkins, going back to Russell, is looking back at a period in cosmology when before the distinction between the privileged planet and the rest of the universe had been foregrounded so much and was more inclined to speak from that rather, I would say, antiquated philosophical and cosmological position. Yeah, I think that's what I would say to that one. Well said. Something that you mentioned earlier on in our conversation was the multiverse hypothesis. And I want to go back to that. Is that just a cop-out? With biological evolution, the cop-out is always given enough time, anything is possible. And in the same train of thought, people are saying, given an infinite number of universes, again, mm -hmm. anything is possible. Mm. Mm. Well, I mean... You should be perhaps talking to some of the brain boxes who come out with this kind of thing rather than to a retired liberal arts professor on this subject. But from what I can see, and I have tried to undertake an independent audit, as I say, of what you know, people cleverer than myself have, have said on this subject. For a start, the idea of a multiverse is not a new idea, surprisingly enough. It goes right back to... Greek antiquity, when some philosophers, who were really brainstormers in those days, of course, said that the universe might be issuing separate worlds, sort of like a bubble goes into a number of bubbles and that kind of thing. That's where that comes from. But yes, I suppose it is a cop-out in as much as people have said it's a kind of cosmic natural selection, that, that if you postulate the universe as being a conglomerate of different worlds, then maybe somebody had to get lucky. I don't find this a very strong argument. I find it a rather facile and glib argument myself for why we should be in this fortunate position. But that's what people say. And I also think that a number of ideas, I don't think that Darwinism is in fact a modern idea. I think that the idea of chance or in his case, natural selection, you know, with the chance mutations and so on, giving it a modern spin, as he did, goes back to Greek antiquity, to Epicurus and his Roman disciple, Lucretius, who said that the world that we know is a conglomeration of atoms all reacting in different ways, and that in some way, certain results, certain patterns would come about whether you wanted them to or not, that there was a kind of, well, I would call it automatism, I mean, and maybe even magic in that kind of thinking, that it is magical thinking. But this is what they said. And the strange thing was that <laughs> the Lucretian idea of chance chimed very nicely with the Darwinian idea of evolution which also depends on chance to an unconscionable degree, as most of us would think. And 
really what happened at that point is that many of the older philosophers of antiquity, like Plato, Aristotle, the early physician Galen, who had complete contempt for the Lucretian idea of things emerging by chance, somehow gained credibility by being linked to the claimed scientific nature of Darwinism. And it was only on the basis of that, I think, that people thought, oh, well, Lucretianism is a pretty strange idea, but perhaps if it's backed up by modern science in the form of Darwinism, oh, perhaps we'd better pile into that and believe it now. That's one way, I think, in which an illogical idea has implanted itself in Western consciousness since the 1860s, and more especially from the 1920s, 30s, and 40s of the last century. Yeah, good point. And I think just as the ancients... You know, they had the materialistic concept, nothing new under the sun. Mm. What Darwin wrote about, he got from a lot from his grandfather Erasmus, who was a polymath. Yes. And then, as you say, I mean, you go back to the ancients and find the same sort of idea percolating. Mm. On the other hand, the ancients also talked about the fact that the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands, or... God's eternal power, divine nature, clearly seen through what has been made, and therefore human beings are without excuse. I want to go to chapter 5 of your book, which is mm -hmm. titled The Mystery of Mysteries, and just read a series of questions that you pose and have you comment. You pose these questions, and I'll read them in rapid fashion. How did a once barren terrestrial environment give rise to life forms? How did the resources deemed necessary to the process, self-replicating molecules bearing genetic information, arise in the first place? What is the ultimate origin of the genetic code, and who or what directed it to produce plant and animal species? Why are we safely cocooned in the cosmic Goldilocks zone? When so many parts of the universe are more reminiscent of, as you pointed out earlier, Dante's Inferno, mm -hmm. where do the laws of physics come from? What was before the Big Bang, and why is there something rather than nothing? Is it fair to say that the notion that the physical facts fix all the facts doesn't stand up to common sense in light of those questions that you raise? I think what I was writing about there is essentially the existential imponderables, which we may never know the answer to. I think that especially, and I'm talking about outside my subject area now, but what I've been able to read and glean, the ideas of quantum physics and mechanics in which so much is uncertain tenuous and probabilistic rather than certain in the ways that we're accustomed to from the Newtonian conceptions of unbroken laws and so on, mean that the underlying reality of our existence, and remember that the quantum world refers to the invisible world, which we didn't even know existed until 75 years ago, because the Newtonian big world is undergirded by the quantum world, then it would be foolish to suggest that anybody could have a complete answer to some of these imponderables. I think that was the point I was making. Or did you wish to ask me another question? No, 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 no. I think that covers it. You know, I'm basically 
asking for an elaboration on what the Oxford mathematician John Lennox said, that the laws of physics are descriptive and predictive, but yes. not creative in their own right. In other words, <laughs> you know, you can have an explanation of gravity, but you can never mm -hmm. communicate that gravity created gravity. <laughs> That's right. I think that John Lennox was sort of crossing swords there with Stephen Hawking and Leonard Mlodinoff in a 2012 book they put out in which they said that certain things could be understood in a purely materialistic way. But I think what John Lennox then said, well, well, yes, but how do you explain these very basic things like the law of gravity and so on? Well, you can't. It's just there. <laughs> You can't get beyond that. I often say that contrast is the conduit to clarity. And I want to make a contrast here. If you follow the Darwinian tributary that has come to dominate the academy, you have to conclude that the universe quite literally created itself. Yes. If you follow Einstein, I think he has a more dignified acknowledgement, the acknowledgement that the laws of nature manifest the existence of a spirit vastly superior to that of humanity, and one in the face of which we with our modest powers must feel humble. And I think the contrast here between the academy, which seems to me to be boastful, and Einstein, who was a superior intellect, far more mm -hmm. humble in light of the evidence that surrounded him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think so. I mean, I was recently reading a biography of Einstein by one Max Yama, that's spelled Jama, it's a German word, J is pronounced as a Y. And he goes into this quite a bit. And the notion that certain abstract qualities if you buy into certain abstract postulations, <laughs> there's got to be an element of faith in it. And I think that probably Einstein saw as much as anybody else did, or perhaps better than many of his colleagues did, that there was a necessity for this. I mean, the other alternative, the alternative of what you said the Academy buys into, I suppose you could gloss it in historical terms as a kind of hubris of trying to claim too much. And I think this is a danger that we try to claim too much and perhaps in former decades, I tried that too much myself, but it doesn't really work because it doesn't, you can't really convince yourself that the universe created itself, that we are autonomous beings. This is not true. We're extremely dependent. We are, as somebody said, the subjects of the cosmos rather than the rulers of the cosmos. Something in your book that I want to perhaps conclude with, although it is so delightful to talk to you, I'm thoroughly enjoying the conversation, but let's talk about the overabundance of what you call invisible natural wonders and our own false sense of entitlement about these innumerable benefits. And you mentioned a number of them. You mentioned the liver, the heart, the cells, the cells, <laughs> which are a diminutive universe in each one 
of these individual cells, as you explain it, mm. eyelids, skin, photosynthesis, and the list goes on. Maybe you can comment on one or a few of these. I mean, the liver in and of itself is able to perform more functions than the largest chemical refinery, as you put it. Mm. The autonomous functioning of the heart, the immune system, and on and on it goes. I mean, we ought to have this sense of wonder, and instead we're stuck in this materialistic paradigm. Mm. Yeah, it's a paradigm that I'm sort of emerging from myself, so I can understand why people would want this. I mean, if I suppose if you're employed as a scientist, you're employed to find materialistic solutions to problems, but I think there's a limit beyond which you can't. And I do think that, I think in former decades, I, was, I don't know if the word is complacent or over-entitled, but, you know, one does take one's body for granted. And you do tend to think, well, that it's a kind of entitlement. Oh, yeah, yes, it's just, this is just a genetic birthright. But the point is, it is also a multi-miracle in common parlance. I mean, it would be dishonest to say that it were anything but a miracle in the way, in the semantic sense, that we use miracle in everyday parlance. And I think that is the sense of wonder. And I think that was born in upon me by reading the book Why Us by James Lefanu, who's a British retired doctor and medical contributor to the Daily Telegraph, London paper called Daily Telegraph, whom I met recently in London. I'll repeat the title for anyone who's interested, Why Us? And it's a book about the human genome experiment, which he knows far more about than I do, which disappointed many medics like himself because it had not brought us to a right royal route to actually understanding the genetic basis of life. There were so many non-gene explanations for what goes on, and the gene is not in itself. Even if you can explore the gene to its ultimate limits, there are things besides the genes. Epigenetic is the word that they use, epigenetic forces, which we haven't really cottoned on to yet. So the thing is of such huge complexity that I don't know how many lifetimes, millennia, whatever it would ever take. My own opinion is that we will never come <laughs> to understand these things fully. I find it the grandest historical irony that the most fervent defenders of Darwinism are claiming to be advancing the ideals of the European Enlightenment. And in the European Enlightenment, the idea was to follow truth wherever it leads. Mm. And I think what's happening is precisely the opposite. I think people mm -hmm. are stuck in their own psycho-epistemological cocoons. They're wedded to an ideology that promotes a worldview that does not correspond to reality. And so they're not following truth wherever it leads. And yet, they claim to be advancing the dictums of the Enlightenment. Yes, I think the word Enlightenment itself is semantically rather virtue signaling, isn't it? Hmm. You know, bringing light to what was dark and so on. And I think it defined itself in contradistinction to the so-called superstitions of the Middle Ages. And what its unique selling feature was that it was going to depend on experimental evidence and so on as the clincher, as the game changer for things. And so it should be. Modern experimental science is, at its best is like that. But Darwin isn't at all like that. It is purely conjectural. 
And it is counterindicated by so many factors that it really surprises me that it still holds water in many very intelligent people's minds. And in your epilogue, and we can conclude with that, you say it is mm -hmm. now half a human lifetime since Michael Denton <laughs> issued his decisive critique of modern evolutionary theory, and yet many biologists continue on business as usual. School textbooks still purvey the same broadly Darwinian interpretation of life, including the presentation of evidences, quote unquote, for evolution that have been long discredited. And I suppose as you end your own book in the epilogue, I suppose I ought to say that I admire you greatly for being willing to bust out of that epistemological cocoon and consider mm -hmm. the fact that intelligent design makes more sense in an age of scientific enlightenment than does the materialistic worldview. I think paradoxical, though that might sound to many people, I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I think for a humanist and a rationalist to write a book as you have written it, First of all, it speaks to your integrity. And secondly, I think, as I said at the very beginning of this podcast, this book is brilliant. It's brilliant not only in how it tackles a subject, but the delightful way in which you use language. Your skill is immense, and I love this book. I seldom read books more than once. I probably should, but this is a book that I've read several times, and I've enjoyed it every single time. Well, I'm delighted to hear so, and thank you very much for your sympathetic questions, and uh, thanks a bunch. Well, I hope one day you make the next step to exploring the God who has revealed himself, not only in the book of nature, but also in the Bible, the Bible mm -hmm. properly read. I think one of the biggest problems with people today is there's a caricature of Scripture, and instead of reading the Bible in the sense in which it is intended, they read it in a wooden literalistic mm -hmm. way in which nothing but nonsense can emerge. And I've gone through this process myself. I, at mm -hmm. one time, embraced the materialistic worldview. I looked at the evidence, as I said at the beginning, the evidence for origins. I think this is the most important apologetic issue. How one views their origins will also determine how they live their life. But then I also looked at the Bible as being divine as opposed to merely human in origin. And I came to a completely different understanding of the Bible and its majestic prowess. And then finally, I also looked at the whole idea of revelation, that God is on the one hand ineffable, on the other hand, he has become knowable in incarnation to the personal work of Jesus Christ, and that Jesus Christ demonstrates that he is God through the immutable fact of resurrection. And I think this is something that we don't have to accept on blind faith, but rather, again, by looking at the evidences. So I've made that journey. I hope one day you complete that journey as well. Oh, thanks for your good wishes. Thank you. Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Hank Unplugged podcast and for writing Taking Leave of Darwin. And by the way, I want to read your next book. Oh. <laughs> as soon as I can see that manuscript, the sooner the better. Well, I, I'm sort of putting the finishing touches to it. My wife suggested one or two tweaks. And what I did with the other book, I sent it to 
Michael Behe originally, and he liked it, which surprised me because he's the great expert and, you know, is a rank outsider. So I'm thinking um, James Lefanu has looked at an early version. So I'll bear you in mind, of course. Thank you very much for your endorsement. <laughs> well, I would love to endorse it. I'm sure that I would be as thrilled about that book as I am of your book, Taking Leave of Darwin, and speaking to our audience. And there we'll close it as we reach the end of this three-part series with Neil Thomas being interviewed by Hank Hanegraaff on the Hank Unplugged podcast. We say thanks to Hank Hanegraaff for granting us permission to republish this conversation. And since, as he said, he's read Neil Thomas's Taking Leave of Darwin several times, we know you'll want to read it at least once, and it only takes a quick search on Amazon using the book's title, Taking Leave of Darwin, to find it, so be sure to check it out there. Thank you for joining us here at ID the Future. I'm Tom Gilson. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.